Well, good morning. Let's turn together, if you don't mind, to Ephesians chapter 4. Our church family recently went verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and we took our time through this particular passage. I think we spent about five sermons on this text, Um, so I'm not going to make a joke about time, because that would be really lame, but uh, I will be quicker than I was (laughs) when I originally went through this text. This text has been very foundational for me as a pastor, for our collective elder team, and for our church. This text has been central in helping us understand our mission as a church, the things that we prioritize. Conversely, because of what we prioritize, there are many things that we just don't do. We're kind of a a simple church in many ways, and the main thing that we tell people when we try to describe our church is that we are seeking collectively as a community in love to see people grow up in Christ, and that's what we do. That's what we care most about. That's a cradle-to-grave thing for us in our church. We believe that from when our children are young until they go to be with the Lord, that every day is an opportunity to grow in their faith, to have one more opportunity to have the old man knocked off a bit, and to have Christ's glory, the image of the Creator, restored in them. And so this text will help us understand this. I, last time when I was able to preach here, preached from Ephesians chapter 2, the last portion of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul encourages the church in Ephesus that was made up of very diverse people to be unified so that the glory of God might be displayed in them and through them. As you perhaps recall, or through your own study of the book of Ephesians, Paul was writing to a church in Ephesus that was made up of Jews and Gentiles. The ethnic tensions of our day are not new. They go back to the garden, and they have been present among God's people and in the church from the very beginning. God, by His providential design, intended for different people to live together and to learn to do so in harmony. Now, this might get a little deeply philosophical for just a moment, but this is an important component of biblical theology, and that is that God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, have lived in perfect harmony with one another from before the foundation of the world to eternity memorial. There's no beginning in the Godhead. And from the beginning, which there wasn't one for the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit lived together in perfect loving harmony. 
and they created a world where that was the intention. Adam and Eve lived in the garden together, initially in perfect harmony. Think about that for just a moment. I won't take a poll here because I know that those who are in our church tend to have been married for a shorter amount of time than a lot of the people in your church. I know that there's people who have been married in this church for over 60 years. The harmony that I hope you possess after many decades of marriage has grown, but you've never known perfect harmony. All of us, those of us who've been married for a while, can remember at least a little bit of the early dating years. When I first saw my wife, it was across an auditorium in a large church building, and I was dumbstruck. Now, all husbands, I think, should feel this way, but I thought that she was the most beautiful person that I'd ever seen. We met a couple of weeks after that. And I remember going home and telling my parents, I was 18 years old, so of course I knew everything. I told my parents, I'm going to marry that girl. Now remember, I had had one 10-minute conversation with her. Now we've been married for almost 20 years now, so it did work out. I was somewhat prophetic. But I remember being awestruck with her beauty. And then as I got to know her, I loved the inside part of her even more. And that has only grown to this day. But as I got to know her better, those first few months of our dating relationship, we began to see annoying things about each other. And then after we got married, guess what? We continue to this day to find annoying things about each other. When you first see the person that you think you might love... You are struck with external things, but then you get to know the real parts of them. They may do all the cliched things, like they they turn the toilet paper roll the opposite way of you do, and which, by the way, let me just clarify, I saw the original patent for the toilet paper holder, and it is supposed to go over the top. (laughs) This is true. I'm not making this up. So for all of you who go from the bottom, you are psychos. But you, those are the cliched things that, we, that we're different about, right? It's, it's the internal things that really annoy us. I'm much more type A than my wife, although my wife is one of the strongest people I've ever known in my life. She's content usually being in the background, but when necessary, she leads. That creates conflict when you bring two strong people into a relationship. I draw a lot of energy from being around people. My wife tends to be a little bit of the opposite. I have a certain perspective on parenting because of the way I was brought up. Hers is a little bit different. We've had to learn to blend those things together. We've had to learn to talk about money. We've had to learn to talk about hard topics. In the church in Ephesus, God in His providence was bringing two different people groups together who were diverse in all kinds of troubling, irritating ways. 
And he was bringing them together to show what real harmony looks like because that's who he is. The Godhead is a relationship of perfect harmony. And when we as his restored image bearers are increasing in our love for one another and harmony grows, what does that do but reflect the glory of our perfect God? And so God wanted through Paul's pen, the church in Ephesus to understand that. He goes on in chapter 3 to say some similar things. And then these are verses you probably know relatively well, have heard before. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. A couple of weeks ago when we were together, Pastor Rick spoke from Isaiah's prophecy on God's glory being displayed here in this earth, particularly through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Paul has taken the first three chapters of Ephesians to help the church there understand who they were in Christ And then begin to help them understand how they were to live together and reflect His glory in this locale. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here, isn't it? We're talking about taking two pretty distinct churches in certain ways that share common passions and common values. And then putting them together and asking ourselves the question, can we live together in harmony And then through that harmony, display to this community surrounding us the glory of God. So the glory of God is the summation of all of His greatness, all of His perfections. God is glorious. And there is nothing that we can do to make Him less or more glorious. He is glorious. But because of the sinfulness of humanity, His glory is at least the manifestation of it, the showing of it, the recognition of it has been eclipsed with human sin. But because Christ has entered into time and space and laid His life down for us and brought us back into union with the Godhead, the glory of God may now be put on full display. Now, one day, my friends, it is coming In fact, the apostle says there will not even be need for the star that we call the sun to light up the recreated earth because the lamb will be there and he will be its lamp. If you've ever tried, parenthetically, this is not really about Ephesians, but if you've ever tried to understand why there was light in the created order before the sun was made in Genesis chapter 1, I think that explains it. Jesus is light. But even in the here and now, Though we're waiting for the not yet, the light is shining. And when we as increasingly restored image bearers reflect the glory of Jesus to the world around us, we are glorifying Him. So the glory of God, which has been eclipsed by human pride and rebellion and sinfulness, is now being restored here on this earth through the church. And I say to you, that perhaps 
this thing that he is leading us to, these two churches, which are distinct and could be irritated with each other over our distinctiveness, could actually be the thing that God will use in this community to show his glory to it. Because, my friends, this community needs it. I live in it. When you look at my neighbors and their expensive homes and their nice cars and their perfect kids, and all that's a little tongue-in-cheek, there is no obvious need on the outside. But I know these families because we spend time with them. And they are just as needy as the most poverty-stricken people in the far-flung corners of the earth. Because until they embrace the only true identity that God intends for them, which was to be known as His children through His Son, they are destitute. And the most expensive home or minivan or vacation cannot cover that up. So could we, could we, as a collective group of people, two distinct churches with traditions and cultural distinctiveness, come together and actually put God's glory on display in this community? What will that look like, and and how will we do that? Ephesians chapter 4, I think, helps us to understand that. So, So Paul calls for the church to glorify God at the end of chapter 3 and then in chapter 4 because there were not originally, as you've heard many times, chapter and verse divisions. He then launches into what that might look like. Ephesians chapter 4, please, if you don't mind, follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God teach us and bless us through the reading of his holy word. Please pray with me briefly. Holy Spirit, now for the glory of our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you will meet us through the word, that we will understand it 
that we will embrace it and that we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. Do this, we pray, for the glory of our God and for our joy. Amen. We are going to briefly look today into this passage and discern that Paul encourages the church in Ephesus and therefore us toward unity and growth. And when unity and growth is being understood and being embraced and being experienced, the glory of God will be on display. Now, that is true for each of our individual churches, but I would submit to you that it could well be true in a more magnified way through a unified church such as this. Your mission statement here as a church, I should make some of you recite it, but we would fail too. I'm going to show you ours in just a minute. Berlin's mission statement goes like this. Our mission is to delight supremely in God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God's name and for the good of neighbors and nations. Ours is really similar. We exist to glorify God through the life-challenging power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the aid of the Holy Spirit, we seek to produce maturing disciples who will be responsible to model and proclaim Christ in their communities and around the world. Pretty similar. We draw ours largely from this text, among others. We are a disciple-making church. We want to make disciples who will make other disciples. The first thing that we will see in this text is that God's glory will be displayed as we exercise our holy calling to promote the unity of our church. We won't take time to deal with every single word, which is why, as I said to you when we originally went through this text as a church, we spent more time in it. So I'm going to skip along the surface just a little bit more than I usually would. But this is the main point that comes from these first six verses. We will glorify God. We will put the glory of God on display. We will reflect His glory as we exercise our holy calling to promote the unity of the church. I call it a holy calling because of verses 4 through 6. This is serious business. There's one body, one spirit into which we've been baptized, one hope, one Lord, speaking of the Lord Jesus in particular, one Messiah, one Savior. There's one faith, one body of doctrine, one baptism. Baptism signifies our union with Christ are passing from death to life, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That, that's the biggest stuff in the world. We're not talking about this year's agenda for your family or this year's business bottom line. That stuff's important to you, but this is the most important stuff of all. So therefore, because we've been made participants in this, it's a holy calling to which we've been called. But but how are we to live out life in the context of that calling, of being united to Jesus Christ, of embracing the one faith that comes from the authoritative Scriptures, of showing identity with Christ through our baptism, of, of embracing and worshiping the one true God who made all things and deserves all worship? How do we, how do we live out life in that context of that calling, of being united to God once again. Well, Paul says we have to be humble. We have to be gentle. We have to be patient 
we have to bear with one another in love. And in verse 3, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul was a prisoner at this point for the sake of this high calling. Paul saw it as such a holy calling, such a high calling, that he was willing to lay down his very life for it. And, and that's what happened. Paul had his head lopped off because he valued this calling so highly. Paul was not a, a part-time Christian. Paul wasn't a, a Sunday Christian. Paul was in chains because his faith was the most important thing he could conceive of. He was willing to sacrifice everything he had for the sake of Christ and that the glory of God might be put on display in Ephesus and elsewhere. You have learned, we can go back to the metaphor of marriage, which is not a stretch because Paul will do that in Ephesians chapter 5, one chapter away. Marriage was given to us for many reasons, procreation, romance, fulfillment, but more than anything else, there's a theological design to marriage. It reflects Christ's love for His church and the church's willing, joyful submission back to her redeeming Savior. You have learned in your marriage, because again, the metaphor is clear here in Ephesians, to lay your life down for your spouse. It's, it's a high calling. It's going to cost you everything. I, I, I tell young people that when I'm doing their premarital counseling. This is going to cost you everything. And they look at you and they nod. Yeah, I, I get it. Right? And then you get like a year into it and they're like, I don't know what I've gotten myself into, right? We already, we already noticed some of the distinctions among our churches, don't we? Even a Sunday worship service shows us some of the distinctions in our churches. We're learning to work through those things, but let me, let me tell you something. Let me, let me warn you about something. If God does put these two churches together officially, guess what? We're going to see things down the road that didn't come out initially, and we're going to be annoyed with each other. But do you understand that the distinctions that we have among each other are not new? This was going on in Ephesus. Different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds. They ate different things. They drank different things. They had different festivals they observed, different, different family traditions. Ring a bell? Paul's almost saying, hey, get over it. I say that a little tongue-in-cheek so you don't get too mad at me. Because the division between Jew and Gentile was infinitesimal in comparison to Paul's understanding of the separation between fallen humanity and a holy God. But what had God done? He sent His very Son to become one of us, to bring us back to Himself. We'll get to this in just a moment, but that's why Jesus descended down to this earth to be Emmanuel, to be God with us, to remind us that the gap between the most two differentiated humans or churches is small in comparison to the gap between us and God, but God bridged it because He loved us. So how do people like us reflect the glorious gospel? We pursue humility. 
We pursue gentleness and patience. We learn to bear with one another. And, and more than this, it's an active thing. Let me say to you, unity can never be experienced in a vacuum. Unity can never be experienced when the car is in neutral. It's always got to be going forward or it will be going backward. Marriages are like that. Churches are like that. Which means that each of us must be promoters of unity. This means that we can't be gossips. It means that we have to guard our mouths. It means that we have to learn not to take offense, perhaps even when offense was intended. It means that instead that we love. It means instead that we promote. This is my wife's new word. One of her good friends who no longer lives in our city. She was a pastor's wife here in the city. She came up with this notion of the antithesis of gossip. You ever thought about that? Any of you struggle with gossip? Nobody's going to raise their hand on that one, right? Um, you know what the opposite of gossip is? You might say, well, not gossiping. That's actually not true. The opposite of gossiping is promoting. Not speaking poorly about a person when they're not in your presence, but actually doing the opposite. Finding the good things about them and, and actually verbalizing them. You know one of the only ways that this potential unified church can display the glory of God is if we all learn to be good affirmers. To get over ourselves because affirming sounds awkward. If you feel that way, then I encourage you to read the Bible because God is never embarrassed to affirm. And if you struggle with the sin of gossip or slander or divisive speech, ask the Holy Spirit to help you be a promoter. Here's some verses to help us with this. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter, a hard-hearted saint at many times, I believe became softer in his older age, and he said, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In Colossians, Paul will later say, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has also forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, Paul says. The apostle would say to the church in Ephesus, don't highlight the differences, highlight the things you share. And so I say to you, if we are going to put the glory of God on display through the idea of this merged church, then we must pursue unity because of the high calling to which we've been called. Is your life marked by humility, by gentleness, by patience, by eagerly promoting bearing with each other and maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Does that mark you? Is that the aroma that you leave behind? Occasionally you're around people who wear a little too much cologne or a little too much perfume. They leave the room and you can still smell that they were there. 
I have a favorite scent. Uh, it's bacon grease scent. Uh, <laughs> when I was a child, my parents um, would leave my brothers and I in Kentucky for weeks at a time, and they wouldn't just drop us off. Um, my grandparents had a farm there, and so we would spend time each summer at our grandparents' farm. And I don't know how my grandmother did it, but somehow she incorporated bacon grease into everything she made. And to this day, I, I love that smell. It reminds me of my grandmother. And it reminds me of really, really good food, too, which if I ate too much of it now would make me larger than I am. But, but that reminds me of my grandmother, that, that, that scent. But it's more than just what she made. It was the heart behind it. She loved to cook for us. She loved to be with us. She delighted in us. When people think of you, is that the impression they have of you? Is that what you leave behind? Is that your lingering aroma? That you're a person who is marked by humility and gentleness and love? There's still time to change. The Spirit is at work making us more like the Son who was this way all of the time. In Romans chapter 15... The apostle says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we are to live together. So God's glory will be displayed as we exercise our holy calling to promote the unity of the church. God's glory will be displayed secondly as we are thankful for and follow the leaders with which Christ has gifted our church. Rick had us read earlier from Exodus chapter 18. We will not take time to turn back there, but this is a good corollary study. The idea of a multiplicity of leaders, a plurality of leaders leading a church. The New Testament leaders didn't just come up with this. This was the way God's people had been led from the very beginning. So Moses needed help, and God through his father-in-law instructed him toward that and was better for the people. Now, Here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is calling the church in Ephesus to be thankful for their leaders. When Christ ascended back to heaven after he descended to this earth and gave his life for it, by the way, if you grew up in a more liturgical background, especially perhaps Roman Catholicism or one of the Orthodox traditions, you perhaps recited the Apostles' Creed, which in later editions talked about Jesus descending into hell. The earliest editions that we have of the Apostles' Creed actually didn't say that, but that He descended to the earth. That seems to be what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4. Jesus came down to the earth and gave His life for lost people. But then He ascended in victory, and He left gifts for the church, but not mansions, not physical inheritance, the gifts that Jesus has left in the here and now for the church, those gifts are people. Initially, in the early formation of the church, it was apostles and prophets. They were the foundation of the church. And evangelists, those are sort of like missionaries, church planters. But in our typical context, we find pastors and teachers. In fact, that might even be the same designations, pastors, teachers. These would be typically the the elders, also known as overseers or pastors of churches. And what are these gifts to do? They're to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. That's their role. That's their primary responsibility. Elders, pastors, overseers are decision makers. 
But their primary responsibility is to present one day to Jesus trophies of grace that look a lot like Him. Now, they don't have any capacity to do that. Only God's Spirit can transform people into the image of Christ. But they are God's means of bringing that to pass. And so, the people that God has left for the church to to lead it are actually gifts from Jesus. Now, I recognize as one of the people who actually falls into this category that we're not always like that. The truth of the matter is, the leaders that God has left for you are sinful. And until we are perfectly rescued and perfectly restored into the image of the Creator, we will make bad decisions. We, we will not always love perfectly. We will not always preach perfect sermons. I know that shocks you. We know it. We feel it. But Jesus has given the gifts to you that He wants for you. And as I am very thankful for the elders that God has given to our church that labor so faithfully alongside me, I have loved getting to know your elders in this church who I know love you very, very much and labor intensely for you. In the past several months, we have had meeting after meeting, hours long, working on all these things that will be necessary to bring two churches like ours together. They have labored for you in love. But their primary responsibility, it's not to be a figurehead. It's to help you grow. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, the author says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. They should live in such a way, not perfectly, but, but live in such a way that you want to follow them. Because one day they're going to have to give account for the way that they've led. Later on in Hebrews 13, the author says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, the author says, including himself in that leadership category, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Leading churches, just forget that I'm one of them for a minute, okay? I'm just talking right now, okay? Leading a church is not easy business. It's hard. It takes lots of prayer, lots of sleepless nights, lots of study of the Scripture, lots of difficult conversations, uh, sadly, lots of disappointment. But we do it because we love God and we love you. And one of the best ways to encourage your leaders is to promote them, to, to affirm them, to tell them that that you are thankful for what they do. We need to hasten on to the end of this text. We will glorify God as we live out the holy calling that God has given us, as we are thankful for the gifts of leaders that God has given us, and as we find here at the end of the text, as we live out the calling that God has given to us to promote the growth and harmony of the church. In verse 13, the apostle moves on and says, because you have been equipped, that's the idea, God's given you leaders to equip you, you are to do the work of ministry. In other words, not everything rises and falls upon the leadership gifts of the leaders. They equip you so you can do the work of ministry. So our last point for today is that we all have a role to play. We put the glory of God on display as we play our role. 
So if the leaders here are doing their job, they're equipping you so you can do their work of ministry, so you can build up the body of Christ. What will that look like? It will look like maturity. It will look like being able to stand against bad doctrine, verse 14. It will look like speaking the truth, verse 15. You know, people who who say to you things like this, well, I just have to speak my mind. I'm one of those people that just has to speak what's on my mind. No, you don't. (laughs) One of the most clear acts and signs of maturity of a person who is walking in the Spirit is they know when to keep their mouth shut and when to open them. But when they open them, the manner in which they open them is done in a spirit of love. Again, there's that aroma that comes out again because at the end of verse 16, you find that as the body grows, it's building itself up in love. So how do we put the glory of God on display here in a church? Well, verses 1 through 6, we... We live out this high and holy calling by promoting unity. Verses um, 7 through 12, we, we are thankful for the leaders that God has given to us, and we follow them. And then thirdly, today, we, we put the glory of God on display when we all live out our calling of doing the work of ministry for which we've been equipped. That means you all have a role to play. No one's exempt. Nobody gets to say, well, that's the leader's job, that's not mine. If you are not applying your gifts and, and how God has equipped you, the body will suffer. You ever had a bum knee? What happens when you have a bum knee? Well, you hobble, right? And what does that affect? Your other knee, right? When, when each part isn't working properly like it should, then the other parts suffer. And so I say to you, God has given us an opportunity here in this church and potentially in this combined church to put His glory on display. That's a high and holy calling. It will cost us everything. But in so doing, our God will be glorified and we will find the deepest joy. And this combined body can really grow. It'll be marked by maturity, by strength, by unity, by harmony. And then we have something to say to this community that's pursuing joy and satisfaction in all the wrong ways and missing out. For Paul, who was willing to lay his life on the line, this was a high and holy calling, and he was willing to do it. And, and I say to you, because that we have been made participants as God's people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity and privilege and responsibility to do just the same. And so, the implications for this as we walk away are that we will learn to live together this way, that we will learn to deliberately promote this. This will not be easy. It will cost you much. It will cause you to recognize where you are deficient. It will stretch you. It will cause you to die to yourself that in so doing, our God will be glorified, we will find the deepest joy, and we then really have something, as I've said, to say to this community around us. Let's pray.